Now on the Boise Dev Podcast, we chat with Boise's new Office of Police Accountability Director, Nicole McKay. We discuss policing in Boise, her view of oversight, and how to avoid some of the past mistakes. Hiring the right people and patience. It's gonna take a little bit to stand the office up. It's gonna take some time to get those people hired and trained. Nicole McKay, next. This episode of the Boise Dev Podcast is sponsored by Lombard Conrad Architects. If you're a frequent Boise Dev reader, you've probably seen their credit on renderings on many cool projects. This Idaho-based firm is focused on designing public architecture through a spirit of collaboration. They've been in business for more than 50 years, and you'd recognize their work from the Velma V. Morrison Center for the Performing Arts to the Ada County Courthouse and Meridian City Hall, and that stunning new Center for Visual Arts along Capitol Boulevard at Boise State. That's their work too. Lombard Conrad Architects values partnership and community above all else. They say it's what drives them to fulfill a simple yet significant mission to enrich and inspire the human spirit through architecture in public spaces. You can learn more at LombardConrad.com. Thanks to Lombard Conrad Architects for their support of Boise Dev. This is the Boise Dev Podcast. Here's your host, Don Day. Nicole McKay, thanks for joining us on the Boise Dev Podcast. Thank you, I appreciate it. Why'd you take this job? Oh, that's that's a really good question. Um, and actually one that I get quite a bit. People are surprised to see where I landed. I've practiced law for you know 25 to 30 years. I took a few breaks here and there. Um, the city reached out to me and which is, was not unusual. After I left the attorney general's office, there were many other lawyers that left with quite a bit of expertise. And so I would have other entities, um, businesses, governmental agencies call and say, hey, we're looking for someone that has this or that. Can you make some recommendations? So someone from the city called and I said, sure, I have some recommendations, absolutely. And I thought that was it. And then I got a call and said, we'd like to talk to you. And I thought, Okay, I mean, I'll talk, I'll talk to anyone because I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. And it was the conversations about community engagement that really just lit up for me. I don't come from, as you know, a law enforcement background, but I've had enough exposure and experience in my governmental work to really come to appreciate how difficult it is to manage a city with all of the challenges. My husband and I have raised three children here and this is a city I love. I've been here for over 30 years and I've seen the changes that Boise has gone through. And I want all the things that we fell in love with to remain. And I thought it's time for me to step up and join the conversation and join that part of the governance that can really strive to make a difference. And it was that piece that really made me think even though you don't have a law enforcement background, that community piece and caring about our community made me really excited, surprisingly. You've lived in Boise a long time. Yes. And so you've been through the late 90s spate of shootings, um, the death of Officer Stahl, the, um, all the things that we went through there that precipitated the launching of the Ombudsman's office. Mm -hmm. Pierce Murphy was here a long time, moved on. 
and uh, his office was effectively dismantled, replaced with a part-time person um, that held for a few years. And then we saw a change in administration. It was bumped to full-time. Obviously, some ongoing litigation there that I know you're not going to want to get into, but the office has essentially been not at full speed for probably eight or nine years, I think, at this point. How do you bring that police accountability or oversight function back to where the citizens feel like, hey, this is working well, while also balancing the fact that policing is tricky turf right now uh, for the people who choose that profession as well? This is something I've thought about quite a bit, both as I contemplated this position and in my first six weeks. As with any complex issue, I think the most important thing is to listen and engage. I do not profess to be an expert in law enforcement or policing. I also do not profess to understand how complex homelessness might be or is. And so I think with experience and my participation at different positions with the government has given me a perspective that allows me to see all the players and how important it is to engage stakeholders. So my plan is to, number one, educate myself. I need to learn more about policing. I need to learn more about all the factors that contribute to these critical incidents that we've seen arise in. Engage those leaders that have um, individuals or members of their group interfacing with the police more regularly and understand what are those stress points? How can we learn more about what's happening out in the community and how can we put into place pieces that will really affect the public's interaction with the police? If we can do that, if we can get people to the table and give them some place to land where they feel heard, I think we can compile enough information for me to have sort of a um, thoughtful and thorough approach to what we need to do in our city to keep it not only safe because we have a very safe community, but to do everything we can to prevent these critical incidents from happening. These critical incidents are hard on the community. They're certainly hard on law enforcement. They're hard on the, the um, suspects who are involved. And of course, if they pass, that's extremely hard on the family as well. So these are, these are not in the best interest of anyone and nobody wants these. So how can we all come together, do our best work and avoid them? And I think there's a lot of work to be done there. We did some reporting about six weeks ago and um, the story had what I consider to be a really rather arresting or choice of word, rather stunning fact in it. Um, and that was that more people had, had died in our interactions with Boise Police Department this year than had been killed by all other people. More people died in interactions with police than have been murdered in the city. Part of that's a function of the fact that the city's pretty safe. But it also points to, boy, we're having a lot of interactions with police that are going to a place where weapons are being drawn and people are being killed. That puts a lot of stress on an office that is there to provide oversight 
talked yesterday about a, a years long backlog of more run of the mill things. And then you have these eight CATF, but you said there's 10. There's 10. One is ready for, for <clears throat> review and nine are in the queue. How do you get all that work done? <laughs> Hiring the right people and patience. It's going to take a little bit to stand the office up. It's going to take some time to get those people hired and trained and proficient at what they do. So I think if we're going to do this right, we have to be patient. It's not going to happen overnight. And I agree. Those statistics are jarring and concerning. And they're concerning for everyone. I'm concerned as a citizen. I'm concerned as the head of this office. And I'm concerned for our police force. And one of the things I intend to do is to look at these critical incidents individually and collectively. What can we learn about these collectively? Are these each going to be so unique that we can't tackle this with some coordinated effort? Or are we seeing some themes? One of the things that I'm curious about, and again, I've not reviewed these critical incidents yet, but I don't know, are we just having an incredible increase of the number of individuals who are not only carrying firearms, but producing firearms when they interact with the police? I don't know the answer to that, but I sure would want to know. Because we all know if you pull a firearm on a law enforcement officer, there are certain circumstances that are gonna occur after that. And is that what we're seeing? Or are we seeing more issues tied to other things such as, you know, individuals who might be dysregulated or dysregulated and, you know, altered with some substance abuse and all complex, right? Complex issues that may have multiple layers to them. And that's what we need to look at. You spoke about transparency. Transparency when you're dealing with suspects and crimes and with personal matters is always tricky. Mm-hmm. We had an incident this summer, pretty high profile, where a person was shot and killed by police. And um, we have very little information from police, very, very little. Um, but what we what we do know is the suspect was shot back. Um, how do you handle that transparency where the public is yearning to just mm-hmm. better understand that the media's getting shut down, the public's getting shut down, leading to rumor, innuendo, TikTok videos, all sorts of things about it that can create a perceived environment that is even more charged than if maybe some good information got out there. How do you you work on that to help people really say, hey, I, I trust the information I'm being given and I feel like I'm being given as much as can be given. Mm-hmm. It's a complex and important issue, and it is definitely at the top of my list. In order for me to to move forward on this issue, I really do need to educate myself, do a deep dive on what does transparency actually mean? Does it mean providing all the information available in 24 hours, 48 hours? I'm sure you've seen some states have gone to that. Some have been through legislative efforts, some have been through initiatives. I want to look at those states that have done that and see what are the pros of that? What are the cons of that? What were the legal limitations or um, protections for that information? Because that all plays into this. Additionally, we have 
a system of justice that requires these certain constitutional guarantees. So in our system, yes, I want to know what's happened with our policing, but I also feel pretty strongly about both um, suspects and our police officers being afforded all the constitutional rights they deserve in a trial if they're charged. So how do we balance all that? It is really difficult. I know there is a certain group that says anything less than this being released 48 hours is not transparency. Well, drawing that artificial line at 48 hours to me doesn't really seem like it's grounded in good sound reasoning because we do have a lot of factors. We need to notify next of kin, if that's appropriate. We need to get the officers through their first um, interviews without interference from these outside sources. So there are certain things that really need to happen to protect the integrity of the process. That said, I understand this pressing need. As a consumer, I wanted to know what had happened. So. I need to take a deep dive on this issue legally, socially, with everybody who's involved. We've got, I want to say, five or six agencies involved in the critical incident task force that rotate. And then we have different prosecutors who review these. And then, of course, um, Ada County does the prosecutions for Boise City felonies. So that's another partner. And then, of course, we have BPD. And so that's a lot of entities to say, Here's what we do, number one, and here's why we do it. And then I think my question is, has anything changed since you made that decision to do it a certain way? And if so, should we reevaluate? If not, should we reevaluate? Because times have changed with the advent of quick news, social media, things being put out there so quickly. And also, you know, third party bystanders put video out immediately. So how do we put that all together in a very sound and reasonable way to protect those constitutional guarantees, but still respect and value the, the people's right to know what's going on with their police force. It's very, very complex and important to me, but I am not going to dive into something without having enough information. And that's what I mean, engaging the stakeholders, doing my homework and making sure what, how we go forward is a thoughtful approach. How do you make sure the information's right? Uh, I think you talk about kind of 48 hours and in one of the more high profile uh, incidents involving police in our country in the last few years with George Floyd, the initial information that came out from police was it was some sort of medical issue. And, and certainly as that went along, um, yeah, a little bit, but he probably, a jury has found he died from his airway being blocked by a police officer for nearly 10 minutes. 48 hours of information might have led you to believe one thing mm -hmm. and that really wasn't an accurate reflection of it. How do you ensure that what your office is putting out is the capital T truth when you may have actors involved who say, well, there was a medical issue and they, and they say that to you they may even say it under oath to you, using it as just a loose example, mm -hmm. of course, not specific. How do you make sure you're getting to the truth? It's a very important and good question. The code for this office authorizes the director to have independent review and investigatory authority. 
And so I have hired an investigator who is well-versed in policing and teaching, training, um, and I would not take that task lightly ever. It's a very serious situation. So I would hope and I would work towards a very thorough review with my own investigator with not only kind of the expertise that I hope to develop out about law enforcement, but it's also a very common sense approach that the public deserves. So I, I, would, I would hope that the combination of those two could get us where we need. I've got a sound person to rely on, and I also hope to build out the rest of my team with some sound individuals. And if I need to employ additional individuals to help vet that, I certainly have the ability and the, the authority to do so. How do you ensure the the previous um, person in the office, again, obviously some litigation there, but uh, I think it's fair to say that individual was out of lockstep with what the political leadership in the building was looking for. Um, And some of that was the political leadership not listening to the individual. The individual said very clearly, I'm randomly auditing videos in an open council meeting and then six, seven months later, it became a big issue. Like, why are you doing this? It's really actually said it. How do you make sure that the actions that you're taking, the things that you're doing are um, what the political leadership here wants, both mayor and council, and that it is in alignment with a code that sometimes can lead to different interpretations as many pieces of code can, as you know. How, how do you make sure that those traps are, are avoided I would say regular and thorough communication with both the mayor and the city council. Are we going to see that in public or is that going to be a non-quorum division of the council or both? My only experience so far has been to meet with the committee and then you saw yesterday's presentation. What the normal course of business is for this, I'm not quite sure given that I'm only six weeks in. but. I've, I've not had the opportunity to meet with them as a body privately, certainly, and I can't imagine that they would. Um, I did have a meet and greet with each, um, with each one, most of them, one-on-one just to say hello and get acquainted. But I would expect all of those meetings to happen in public. And, you know, we have work sessions and then the committee that makes up um, the three-person member committee for OPA, um, there's an opportunity there for me to say, here's what's going on, here's what I'm doing. And I w- would fully intend to repeat that uh, in front of the entire body. So I'm, I'm confident that with regular and thorough communication, um, they will know what I'm doing and I will understand where they want the direction of this office to go or address concerns that they have or you know anything else that might come up. You spent a lot of your career sort of uh, politically adjacent, <laughs> I would say. Um, uh, you know, the, the Attorney General's office obviously is a uh, elected office, uh, on a Republican. Um, now you're appointed by a nonpartisan mayor, but a, a, a Democratic mayor and a, for now, a Democratic council. Um, I was struck yesterday that you kind of struck a um, fiscally conservative tone in your messaging. Worked for Republican for a long time, now you're working for Democrats. Um, do you think that that changes how you approach things at all? Or what kind of core values do you carry through from Lawrence Wasden's office to Norman McLean's office? 
Number one, I have tremendous amount of respect for both our mayor and our previous attorney general. Coming out of so many years with the attorney general's office, it is ingrained into me and I'm very proud of that tethering to the rule of law and the facts. And that will never change for me. As a lawyer, that is just the foundation of how you approach the world. I absolutely intend to move forward with that. I have studied the code and the regulations exhaustively so that I make sure that I am within the course and scope and duties of my office. Um, after so many years at the state, I think that fiscal conservatism, conservatism is just ingrained in me and it's also just how I tend to view things. That said, I very much appreciate that the council wants to make sure that I have what I need to do business in a professional and effective manner. And I appreciate that. That part is a little refreshing for me. <laughs> um, you, you know, you didn't get into a lot of weeds yesterday. You talked, I think, pretty generally. You brought up the, the Bringles situation in kind of a parenthetical way. I don't want to ask questions about that today. Um, but I was, um, I, I found it quite interesting that you spent quite a bit of time talking about professionalism. Mm -hmm. And while I think that you were saying that, that you think that your office needs to be professional, what I took away is you seem to be indicating that you believe that some of the complaints that you've looked at in that backlog stem from a lack of professionalism within the police department. Do I have that right? And, and if so, what leads you to think that? And, and then I guess the follow on would be, how do you make that better? How do you help make that better? Mm -hmm. You're correct. It, it is, I was speaking to the professional of, professionalism of both the OPA office and BPD. I've not made it through even close to all of the backlog of communications between constituents and our citizens in the OPA office. But the theme that I have heard is I have this problem and I am very, very frustrated because I had an interaction with an officer and I was then referred to other individuals in the police department. And oftentimes they don't know what the role of that other person is. They just know they talk to someone else. So by way of example, it could be a sergeant or not, I don't know. Um, and that they felt like they were not treated with respect or listened to, or that there was that level of customer service that I would expect in leadership. Officers out in the field have a very difficult job. And I have seen enough body cam footage to know that we have a lot of officers doing things really, really well. And it's impressive. But unfortunately, the ones I hear from are the ones who've not had those experiences. So I wanna make sure that even when we are dealing with somebody who may be challenging for a variety of reasons, and we've all come across those individuals, the reality is they're struggling. And I really wanna make sure that when my office responds to somebody or somebody at BPD responds to somebody, that even if they are struggling and they're being difficult, that we can still be our best selves. And can we go the extra step and help someone? One of the things I've been talking with our new case administrator about is 
When you have someone who comes to OPA, it is not uncommon for someone to not really understand what this office is for. But can we go the extra step and say, hey, what I really think you need is to contact such and such agency and ask for this and maybe even give them a phone number or an address or something. Can we provide that extra customer service so that people feel they can come to these governmental entities that work for them and navigate the world? It's it's complex in government to figure out how to navigate the world. And I appreciate that. So it's important to me that both BPD and OPA demonstrate that um, professionalism and customer service and how do we get there? It is training, absolutely training. Are we having those conversations? Are we, are we rewarding individuals who engage in that kind of professionalism and leadership? Are we, are we putting that in merit reviews? Are we giving promotions to those individuals? That part I don't know. As I mentioned yesterday in the presentation, I've got a lot to learn about how the how BPD does business in so many ways. And I'm sure that they already have these in place, but can we get to a point that we're extending so much customer service and professionalism that our complaints go down? That's what I'd like to see. It does, it does bring up something that the city has talked about making changes to the, to the OPA um, code, um, partly because some of it's a little confusing. So two more questions. One, do you believe it's within the authority of your office to randomly audit body cam video? And two, do you think that there's changes that, that could or should be made to the OPA code that you'd like to see? So the first question about randomly auditing video has been addressed. So I believe both in the regulations or code. I could pull them and look at it if you wanted. Um, but also there's an MOU between OPA and OIA about the circumstances in which the databases are accessed. And it is for, again, I'd have to look, you know, cases, audits, investigations, things of that nature. So I do not believe, based upon the changes that have been made in the MOU, that random audits are contemplated or authorized in the framework for this position. That said, if I got in information that led me to believe that a random audit would be appropriate, then I would have that communication with the mayor and city council and say, I am concerned about a pattern of sure. cases that demonstrate X. I now want to go look at body cam footage from Friday nights downtown from 12 p.m. to 12 a.m. for a certain block distance or, or something that would be relevant. So yes, I do think we have that ability, but for me to go in and just start watching video, I do not think that is contemplated or authorized. That said, that is my take on it, and that is based upon the changes that were made since I've been here. Well, made right before I got here. So that is absolutely no comment on what the law looked like or the situation with the previous director. And as to potential changes that you think might be appropriate, is that a process that you think will go, you'll want to go through as time goes on? And, and how would you see that happening? Yes, I think the lawyer brain in me cannot go through regs and a code and not think, is that clearly defined enough? Is there a better way to organize this? Do, do the regs complement the code as they should? Because the code is meant to set out the framework and the regs are meant to add all the details and process and context and all of those things. So 
absolutely, I intend to take a look at both of those, how they work together. I do think that is probably the one year mark. So I can go out and get enough context for all of these things because you can read what's in the code and the regs and think until I use it, not really sure how this pans out, right? I'm so, not a lawyer. It's yeah. <laughs> so I would like to get a year under my belt and then take a deep dive on both of those and make sure that we have what we need for this office to run like the city and the citizens want it to. And my last question is um, there, not just in Boise, but generally there's a tension for police oversight, police accountability between three parties, the political leaders, the elected leaders, the police, and the public. We've seen about three different approaches, I think. Um, you had Pierce Murphy, mm-hmm. you had um, uh, Natalie Mendoza, and you had uh, Jesus. They all took a little different mm-hmm. approach. How do you see your role in the future? And if you, if your answer is balance, <laughs> how do you, how do you? Not my first interview. How do you, how do you get, how do you get to that balance? This is gonna circle back around to my very first answer, with which is I have to get in and listen to the stakeholders. I really do. This is such an important piece for the community. I want the public to have confidence and trust in our police force. And I want the police force to feel like they are supported. So how do we achieve that? I've gotta go out and talk to all the experts and figure out how to balance that. It's, it's very important and difficult, but I do intend to strive for that. I'm not there yet.